Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 64, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. Why don't you phone some of your friends tomorrow? Spend so much time indoors. I don't have any friends. You said so yourself. Maybe you'll let me wash your hair tonight. What you need is to get outside more. And look after yourself. You've worn that same dress for two weeks. I like this dress. It becomes me. How about a nice green salad? How about a nice purple salad? More than twice the minimum daily requirement of riboflavin. Did you know that? Is that so? Yes, it's so. You can tell that stupid Dr. Gordon that I'm finished with his medieval treatments. Well, that's fine with me. I never believed him anyway. Believed what? That you are mentally disturbed or whatever it was he said. How does a stake strike you? Stakes cannot strike if you must know. I ate steak tartare in New York. What's that? It's raw meat with the blood still in it. Oh, it sounds terrible. <laughs> Esther, you know, I've been thinking. Why don't you let me teach you shorthand? You never can tell when it will come in handy. Because I'm going to take the poetry seminar at the university. But you didn't hear from them, did you? There's plenty of time, Mother. It doesn't begin until August 15th. Now, do you know what that says? Fuck worms. No, it says, look, dear sir, in reply to your letter of June... How do you know it says that? Because I teach it. <laughs> it's very simple. Now, look, this is dear sir... Solution hanging with the raisin girls. She's got 
to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will be taking a thorough look at one piece of literature we have both read and determine whether or not it is required reading. As always, I'm Tom Panneries, and with me is my lovely co-host, and I really don't want to compare her to anybody in this book, even though... Not everybody in this book is awful, but I really can't find a comparison right now. So please welcome back Stella. Thank you. Yes, it it was interesting because I was reading this on my way and in and away from New York City. Mm. So it had an interesting feel about it as I was reading it. That is the... That is the more depressing equivalent of the time my wife and I went to Paris on our honeymoon. And it was 2003, and she was reading The Da Vinci Code. So, like, all of the Paris parts of The Da Vinci Code, she was like, oh, this is kind of fun to read. (laughs) So, the Beltra is not as happy as The Da Vinci Code. I've not read it, but, yeah, I imagine that's probably true. It's got its moments. pretty good. It's it's a a halfway decent thriller. It, It got a little bit taken a little too seriously let's just say but um as far as a a page turner that you read like while on a metro ride to and from work it's worth it so that's my review of the da vinci code we're not talking about the <laughs> okay. da vinci code but we are talking about the bell jar but how are you before we oh get there? you know yeah doing okay I certainly well we'll talk about it but yeah it's it's certainly interesting being back at school mm-hmm. and trying to manage schoolwork and podcasting and pre- prepping for podcasting so no wonder you didn't read as many books mm-hmm. when you were in school because I cut my to read list down to 50 or my goal I guess for yeah. 2022 to 50 rather than 100 and even so it's like it's hard <laughs> to yeah. find time to read that. I'm like, well, this is what it was like when I was an undergrad. I didn't leisurely read anything. So yeah, and then the um, the thing that that I always mention about, um, and I even tell my students this. I say, you, know, I read, I read, I read this in college. They're like, did you like it? And I'm like, I don't remember it. There are so many books that you were assigned in college that I can't remember. I remember reading. <laughs> I remember discussing, I, I, I can't remember if I liked them or not and such, because it was just, it was a, a blur of, of literary works, especially when you minor in English and major in writing, you know, um, it's, you know, so I, I totally understand college, college pleasure reading was like a summer thing for me. And I remember one summer it was like star Wars and star Trek novels and, because that was had been sitting on my shelf since high school. And I'm like, I'm just going to go ahead and read a bunch of these that I had never gotten around to. <laughs> so, well, cool. Well, good luck. Thank you. Yeah. It's only semester one. Yeah. So we've got some 
Well, you'll be reading some things. You'll be reading a lot of educational journal articles. No, can't wait. That should count because some of those are long. Oh, great. <laughs> Thank goodness for the PDF reader on my tablet. <laughs> Just say that. I didn't have to print them out. So, all right. Yeah. But no, we're talking about The Bell Jar, which is by Sylvia Plath. It was her only novel. We'll get into Ms. Plath and um, her life as well as her literary career in a moment. But uh, before we get there, uh, what is your history with this book? Because I think we both have history with this book. I don't think this is the first time for either of us. Yes, I think, unfortunately, I feel like I read this and The Virgin Suicides pretty closely together. I don't know exactly what the – I think I was just kind of – bouncing around but it was on my rory gilmore's reading list Mm -hmm. and her collection of letters was also on my rory gilmore's reading list so that was also interesting though that was one of the last things that i read before i finished it so i kind of got an insight into who sylvia plath is or was and this time around i certainly i think i better grab not that i did not understand what was going on initially Mm -hmm. but you know that as i think is something that we talk about a lot that we meet literature where we are and i think as we grow we start to receive it differently so i certainly received it (laughs) differently and i think grasped certain aspects of it better and maybe more powerfully than i did initially so i'm glad there was a space in between though because you know reading it had i read it one or two years ago i think maybe it would have been too much Uh, (laughs) but i think there's enough space between when when i first read it and then this time yeah i read it i was assigned this in college and I want to say it was my creative one of my creative writing classes in poetry because I do remember we did like author studies throughout one of those courses that course and like so we would do several poets instead of just a bunch of a smattering of poems from different poets for style and Plath was one of them so it was in the middle of reading a ton of her poetry I don't remember what my reaction was to it back in this would have been ninety seven ninety yeah, 97 or so. Um, uh, I think it was one of those books that I read, discussed, and just kind of forgot. I, I never, I don't remember having any disdain for it. I can say that. But I think you're right in that you get a different perspective in reading it um, years later with a lot more, I think, uh, experience behind you. Although I see why she is the or at least back in my generation was one of the authors of choice for um, what would come to be known as the emo girl, <laughs> you know, this sort of, you know, um, the, the sort of creative writing student who'd like to write, write a lot of depressing poetry or, or essays or short stories about things that were just like horrible in their life. And the Plath was kind of the template for that. And I, I, I say that with, a little bit of tongue in cheek. Um, I probably said it used to say with more derision back in the day, <laughs> but yeah, so I do remember reading this. In fact, this, this copy is, um, the copy that I'm holding is the one I read in college and it belonged to my girlfriend. So there you go. Your girlfriend at the time. <laughs> 
Well, she's sitting the upstairs at the up? moment. <laughs> so, oh, no, it's that my was wife's. so weird. Why would you refer to her as your girlfriend? <laughs> because I opened up the flap and it had her maiden name on the inside cover of the book. Oh my gosh. So I was just, I was being cheeky. Yeah, no, it's I my, guess. it's my wife's copy. Um, she had, I think she read it in college before I did, or had to read it in high school or something. So it's what happens when you marry an English major. Mm-hmm. She has, um, scandalous books. Mm-hmm. That and the complete works of William Shakespeare. <laughs> so. Well, there you go. Is that the only reason why you married her for her works of literature? Um, not the only reason, but it, it, oh my gosh! No, the I will the tell fact you, that there was a delay mm, between there is awful. Well, no, I I will tell you that he like her being really well read and us just enjoying the amount of culture both popular and like high culture that we in, that we enjoy together and also coming into our relationship with different interests and things um sometimes to her disdain she uh she now understands continuity in comic books <laughs> she's just like she does that like you did this to me when we talk about stuff like this, especially like the mcu and stuff but like you know her love of like fashion and different things of literature and stuff like that like rubbed off on me so having the two of us come there and and being able to have like really really just enjoy each other's company in that way you know mm-hmm. we both have our things that we like but there's a lot that we watch and read or talk about or listen to together which is really really cool so that's um that's that's what I really love. And, and the literature was part of that because like, we're both very, I think we're, but we would consider ourselves well-read people, even though we, you know, we, we have separate interests and sometimes they overlap and intersect. So, and then we have, our kid has so many books, so, <laughs> but, and, and many, many, many Spider-Man comics. So, <laughs> so there you go. Anyway, tangent over i really do want to talk about the book i'm sorry it's been a long two weeks uh <laughs> shall i get into it i i think that's fine you're you're tired yeah. and i'm punchy let's go um <laughs> sylvia plath was born on october 27th 1932 in boston and she grew up in winthrop massachusetts her mother was the daughter of austrian immigrants and her father Otto Plath was a distinguished biology professor at Boston University and a highly regarded expert on bees and beekeeping. And uh, before I go into this, I have to say that the, my copy of The Bell Jar, which is from uh, published by Bantam back in, you know, whatever it was published, has like a five or six page author's, uh, author's bio, like mini biography of the author um, called... Doo-doo-doo. Um, Sylvia Plath, a biographical note written by Lois Ames. Um, so I took a lot of the information here from, from that particular, uh, from that particular biographical note. So that's my source. So Otto Plath was her father. Um, he died after a long illness in November of 1940 and her mother and her grandparents decided to move away from Winthrop 
back in toward Boston to Wellesley. Wellesley is one of the more conservative and upper middle class suburbs of Boston. Um, and they all worked various jobs to keep themselves, you know, just afloat, essentially, while Sylvia attended the local public school. Um she showed an interest in writing at an early age, writing and drawing and winning prizes for that. And then she would have her first short story published in August of 1950. It was called And Summer Will Not Come Again, and it was published in Seventeen magazine. At the same time, Plath had the poem Bitter Strawberries published in the Christian Science Monitor. In the fall of 1950, Plath began attending Smith College on a scholarship from the Wellesley Smith Club and its patron, Olive Higgins Prouty. By all accounts, she was a successful student, although her personal writing shows an inner conflict between what she wanted to do as a writer and the expectations she felt were placed on her by society to find a husband and have children. She eventually would say, it's quite amazing how I've gone around most of my life in the rarefied atmosphere under a bell jar. In 1952, Plath was chosen to be a guest editor at Mademoiselle for Mademoiselle's College Board Contest. And it would be the summer of 1953 where she has the guest editorship slash internship at the magazine that she will use as inspiration for the bell jar. So the the one of the things is this this book is referred to as a roman a clef, I believe, and it's essentially as a, a thinly veiled autobiography of a part of her or memoir of part of her time. And this internship that she had at Mademoiselle is the New York City setting part of it. Um, this uh, Plath was chosen. Uh, this is where, uh, sorry, this culminates in her role of guest managing editor of Mademoiselle's August 1953 issue. It's the Back to College issue. Um, I'm going to put a link to some articles and pictures about this issue uh, and this time in her life in the show notes. I found a Chicago Tribune issue, a Chicago Tribune column that was written by Lori Levy, who was at Mademoiselle with her. She was one of the other interns. Um, and then there is, uh, um, I did a search for that issue. You can get it for about like 30 or $40 on eBay is about the going rate, but there are a couple of places, there are a couple of, um, websites that have some, uh, screen caps, uh, some, some scans and things like that. So I'll include that in the show notes for all of you. So it's after the summer of 53 that Plath has the depressive episode and suicide attempt that is detailed in the novel. She crawls under the porch of her mother's house and swallows a bottle of sleeping pills. She would then go on to fully recover and return to Smith, where she graduated in 1955, summa cum laude, and heads to Cambridge on a Fulbright scholarship. It's while in England that Plath meets and marries Ted Hughes. And in 1957, they will move back to the United States and Plath will go on to teach at Smith for two years before they head back to London. It's during this time that Plath writes what will be her first book of poems called Colossus and begins applying for a grant to write a novel from the Eugene Saxton Fund. Colossus is published in 1960, shortly after the birth of her first child, Freda, and she is awarded the Saxton Grant in 1961. She lives off this money while writing The Bell Jar, and that is published in 1963. I will have more on the publication history of The Bell Jar in just a moment. Plath's son, Nicholas, was born in 1962, and she and Hughes would separate that summer, it's around this time that she begins writing the poems that would be featured in her collection, Ariel, 
And she would also attempt suicide a second time in the summer by driving her car off the road. Plath sought treatment for depression in late 1962 and early 1963, but she ultimately died by suicide on February 11th of 1963 when she sealed all of the doors and windows of her kitchen and put her head in the oven, asphyxiating herself via carbon monoxide poisoning. Her true fame would come posthumously with the 1965 publication of Ariel, a poetry collection that includes some of her most famous poems, such as Daddy and Lady Lazarus, and is considered to be one of the seminal works of confessional poetry. It was influential on, like, break out the list, you know, this is how she's incredibly, incredibly influential. Whether said influence is a positive or negative is often debated, as, as is whether or not all of her poetry should be read as strict autobiographical confession. In fact, I think uh, we can probably get into that some way during our discussion. I actually, we actually did discuss that in my creative writing class. I remember having a conversation with our professor about whether or not you should actually read into every single one of Plath's poems, especially since she committed suicide. And it's kind of one of those things like um, when Kurt Cobain killed himself, like everybody was reading into every single lyric of every Nirvana song, trying to find the clues as to, you know, his mental illness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So... Um, you know, so it kind of comes with, you know, when those things happen. Um, so anyway, Ted Hughes would pass away in 1998. Their daughter, Freda, is a writer and artist. Uh, their son, Nicholas, was a marine biologist, and he sadly took his own life in 2009. The Bell Jar is the only novel written by Plath. It was originally this this part of it uh, of this segment is from Wikipedia, by the way. It was originally published under a pseudonym. It was Victoria Lucas uh, in 1963. It's semi-autobiographical with the names and places of people changed. And it is referred to as Romana Clef because of the protagonist's descent into mental illness parallels her own experience, which would, may have been clinical depression or bipolar 2 disorder. The novel was published under Plath's name for the first time in 1967, and it was not published in the United States until 1971 in accordance with the wishes of both Plath's husband, Ted Hughes, and her mother. And it has been translated into nearly a dozen languages. According to uh, Ted Hughes, Plath began writing the novel in 1961. Um, she finished writing it in August after she separated from Hughes. Plath moved to a smaller flat in London giving her time and place to work uninterruptedly that at top speed with very little revision from start to finish, she wrote the bell jar, which is what he said. Plath was writing the novel under that fellowship. I mentioned the grant affiliated with Harper and Rowe, but it was disappointed, but Harper and Rowe was disappointed by the manuscript and actually withdrew it, calling it disappointing juvenile and overwrought um, early workings of the titles include diary of a suicide and the girl in the mirror. Um, it has been, um, Adapted a couple of times. It's been referred to many times in popular media. Um, Iris Jamal Dunkel wrote of the novel that often when the novel appears in American films as television series, it stands as a symbol for teenage angst. I have jokingly referred to it as the girl version of The Catcher in the Rye. Um, so there have been a couple of adaptations. There was a 1979 movie starring Marilyn Hassett as Esther Greenwood, our titular character. And featured the tagline, sometimes just being a woman is an act of courage. And in the film, there are some differences in the film that the character of Joan tries to get Esther to agree to a suicide pact that does not include 
that does not occur in the book. Uh, in July 2016, Kirsten Dunst had been announced as making a directorial debut with an adaptation of The Bell Jar with Dakota Fanning in the uh, role of Esther Greenwood. But in August 2019, it was announced that Dunst was no longer attached to The Bell Jar and it would become a limited TV series from Showtime. I don't know what has become of it since then. So the book has been, last little bit, has been banned and or challenged, because <laughs> I always find this information. Uh, Warsaw, Indiana schools in 1977 challenged. There was a challenge to the book, and it actually made the news at one point or another because book challenges of this regard were, were rare, as opposed to February of 2022, where they seem to be coming at for every book. Uh, Warsaw, Indiana schools in 1977 wanted it out of there. People wanted it out of there because of violence, vulgarity, sex, and an objectionable way of life. So that's the background on Plath and the Bell Jar. You have anything to add to that before I head into the Wikipedia summary that I will probably trim down because this thing is long. <laughs> I saw that when I was looking at our, our stuff this morning. I don't if only that it makes me sad and also i don't know this was in the novel but the fact that esther went a couple of days before being discovered mm -hmm. in the basement was a bit shocking because i thought she would have been dead yeah. um so i wonder did they say that sylvia went a couple of days without being discovered if i recall correctly she did um and i should have looked that up um, it's crazy. I'm surprised that that happens. I don't yeah. know. I guess I just always think like, wow, if you're if you're down and all of that, that's, you know, six hours at most. Um, no, I've, oh, okay. I wonder I wonder that myself. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm not not entirely uh, not entirely sure how that how that works. So <laughs> I don't. Well. Uh, yeah, I don't know how. Um, I don't know Someone's how long. Someone's going to track you there. if you Google it, so maybe don't Google yeah. it. No, I, I looked up on Wikipedia. I couldn't find it. All right, so let's get into the plot of the novel because, like I said, um, Esther Greenwood essentially is Plath, and this is one of those things that it is a very, a very thinly veiled, semi-autobiographical work. So, so it does take place in 1953, and our main character is Esther Greenwood, a 19-year-old undergraduate student from the suburbs of Boston, and she is awarded a summer internship at the fictional Ladies Day magazine in New York City. During the internship, she feels neither stimulated nor excited by the work, fashion, and big city lifestyle that her peers in the program seem to adore. She finds herself struggling to feel anything at all aside from anxiety and disorientation. Esther appreciates the witty sarcasm and adventurousness of another intern named Doreen, but she also identifies with the piety of Betsy, who is an old-fashioned and naive young woman. Esther's benefactress is Philomena Guinea, a former successful writer of women's fiction, and she funds the scholarship through which Esther, from a working-class family, is enrolled at her college. And if you think back to a few minutes ago where I was talking about how she lived in Wellesley and she had the scholarship and there was a you know and she was essentially the working class girl in an upper class town you know which is a character trope at this point but um but that was very very much her life so that's what esther that's who esther is 
And uh, she describes in detail several serial comic incidents that occurred during her internship, beginning with a mass food poisoning of the interns from lunch thrown by the staff of the magazine. I think it was the crab dip or something. Um, she reminisces about her boyfriend, Buddy. This is a guy she's dated more or less seriously and who considers himself to be kind of her de facto fiance, like, you know, their sweethearts from back home. Her internal monologue often lingers on musings of death and violence. Shortly before the internship ends, she attends a country club party with Doreen, and she is set up with a man who treats her roughly and sexually assaults her before she breaks his nose and leaves. Good for her. Um, that night, after returning to the hotel, she impulsively throws all of her brand new and fashionable gifted clothing off the roof. In fact, I believe when she returns home, she's like wearing some of Doreen's clothes or something or clothes that were like loaned to her. And she just wears the same thing for like weeks on end. Esther returns to home in Massachusetts. She has been hoping for another scholarly opportunity when she gets back there, a writing course taught by a world-famous author. But on her return, she is immediately told by her mother that she was not accepted. So her plans get derailed. She then decides to spend the summer potentially writing a novel, although she feels she lacks enough life experience to write convincingly. All of her identity has been centered upon doing well academically. Esther is unsure what to make of her life once she leaves school, and none of the choices presented to her, such as motherhood, um, as exemplified by the her neighbor Dodo Conway, who's just always having kids, or sorry, or, or other stereotypical fields like stenography and stuff. Um, you know, what's stenographers, hairdressers? What's the thing in the Batman <laughs> Batgirl the Oracle intro? <laughs> And librarians. Oh, yeah. Librarians and... Yeah, and li Wasn't it just like, yeah. and... Yeah. None of these things appeal to her. She becomes increasingly depressed and finds herself unable to sleep. Her mother instructs her to see a psychiatrist. She does. His name is Dr. Gordon. He doesn't. She doesn't trust him because he's attractive and he doesn't seem to listen to her. He prescribes ECT or electroconvulsive therapy or as sometimes we were referred to as like shock treatment or shock therapy. Um, afterwards, she tells her mother that she's not going to go back to that. And the, the treatment is not effective. Her mental state worsens. She takes she makes several half-hearted attempts at suicide. This includes swinging far out to sea before she actually makes a serious attempt. She crawls into a well-hidden hole in the cellar and swallows many sleeping pills that have been prescribed for her insomnia. The newspaper presume that she's been kidnapped and killed but she's discovered alive under her house after an indeterminate amount of time. She's sent to several mental hospitals until her college benefactress, Philomena Guinea, supports her stay at an elite treatment center where she meets Dr. Nolan. Dr. Nolan is a female therapist, and along with regular psychotherapy sessions with her, she's given huge amounts of insulin to produce a reaction, in quotes, and according to the Wikipedia entry here, it says it was a common and then disproven psychiatric treatment. And again, she receives shock treatments, Dr. Nolan ensuring that they would be properly administered. While there, she describes her depression as feeling as if she's trapped under a bell jar, there's your title drop, struggling for breath. Eventually, Esther describes the ECT as beneficial in that it is kind of an antidepressant effect. It lifts the metaphorical bell jar in which she felt trapped and stifled. While there, she also becomes reacquainted with Joan Gilling who also used to date Buddy. While Esther and Joan are hospitalized, Joan commits suicide unexpectedly. Uh, Plath in the novel heavily implies that Joan 
is not only uh, a lesbian, but is was attracted to and or interested in Esther. Esther tells Dr. Nolan how she envies the freedom that men have, and how she as a woman worries about getting pregnant. Dr. Nolan refers to her to a doctor who fits her for a diaphragm. Esther now feels free from her fears about the consequences of sex, free from previous pressures to get married, potentially to the wrong man. Under Dr. Nolan, Esther improves in various significant events, such as losing her virginity, which she does to a math professor, I believe it was, um, and Joan's suicide provide her with a new perspective. Esther interacts with Buddy once again toward the end of the novel, at which point he wonders out loud, who will marry Esther now that she has been hospitalized, affecting their ending their relationship and commitment to being engaged. The novel ends with Esther entering a conference room with her doctors who will decide whether or not she can leave the hospital and return to school. And it was suggested near the beginning that she did leave the hospital and actually in later years went on to have a child. So that is a plot synopsis of The Bell Jar. Stella, did you like the book? Yeah, I I do enjoy this i think that it is interesting to say enjoy Mm -hmm. but uh, i'll go with that and this time around it was very interesting because when i was uh, i'll tell you two stories associated with this reading or three one of them is that i was waiting for my amtrak here in this town that we live in tom and i and randomly a guy starts chatting me up and uh, was asking me (laughs) he said what were you reading in the station? And I said, oh, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. And he said, you know, is it any good? And I had to say, well, you know, it's about, it is, but it's about a woman having an emotional breakdown. And then I was restating this story <laughs> to Carolyn Coca. <laughs> I don't know if listeners know who she is, but I was telling her about this guy who was chatting me up. And I said, when he asked me what it was, you know, what it was, I said, The Bell Jar. And she started cracking up because, you know, it only makes sense if I think you know who it is. Like, that would probably be a red flag, maybe, to <laughs> chat with someone who's reading The Bell Jar. If you know, then, you know. <laughs> I know. The uh, the third one is just like, I, work is not ideal right now and so i've had some dark days and so this really hit me in a particular way Mm -hmm. and just you know trying to think of like let's let's not you know let it get this bad but i think having more compassion for her rather than you know a step above empathy just because like i'm you know to a certain extent like experiencing some of the things she's experiencing and so just being on a different level with it, with it was a bit disconcerting. But overall, yeah, I feel like it's a worthwhile piece of literature, and I enjoyed it. And she's darkly comedic, yeah. you know, at times. Um, just the way she lays things out is is like humorous, and then you feel bad, like it's actually not that funny. But yes, so easy answer is yes, I did enjoy. Yeah, it. she's got kind of an acerbic wit at times that I really liked. <laughs> I was like. Oh, um, yeah, I like this, too. Uh, and like I said, I never had any disdain for it from what I remember. Um, I like the fact that, you know, I chose the book, obviously, but I like the fact that it had been about 20 to 22 or 23 years since I've read it. Right. And not only that, it's it, I read it without the 
like the capital S capital P of Sylvia Plath hanging over it the way I was assigned it in college, if that makes sense. Mm. So like the kind of like, this is the big important work type of type of attitude of which I think, I think maybe it's just me with that hang up where like I was, whenever I was assigned something that was supposed to be quote, very important. Um, the, I, I, I felt wary uh, that I, I needed to make sure I liked it or appreciated it and couldn't be critical of it. Um, and uh, so, like, you know, I heard always heard about Plath and stuff, and I read it back in college. This time around, you know, I knew it's, you know, obviously knew its reputation, and I was doing it as a reread. And I think being an adult helped, more of an adult helped, you know, rather than being a 2021, 20, but being like 44. Um, and yeah, I, I, I had a lot more compassion for her. Um, a better understanding of the class and social issues in this too, as well as some of the, and we're going to get into this, some of the, like the more feminist aspects of it that I really didn't grasp when I was in college. And, um, and, and the, the style, like I said, the wit in there is really, really, really funny. And, um, and I did feel, you know, and, and, you know, it's probably not the best book to read, like in the, um, in like the dead of winter, but, and, and, and I've been overwhelmed too lately. So I, I could relate to quite a bit of this here and there. Uh, but yeah, um, I, I could appreciate its darkness for what it is and I could appreciate the author. So I really did enjoy it. So, um, I guess the first question, let's just kind of rip the bandaid off of this first question and ask, do we really need to know what happened to Sylvia Plath in order to enjoy this novel? No, but I, I think it adds a depth to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, with I feel like we're in a sequence of several novels that we've done where there is some author history or biography that comes into play mm -hmm. with what that author is writing. And I think it just adds something. So ooh, I would be potentially concerned maybe you know if if someone's just writing the, this off the top of their head you know yeah. how people are like there's got to be you know Stephen King he's probably messed up <laughs> and so you know someone may have said that about Sylvia Plath but then when you're like well she's actually lived through some of this this is you know Edith is pretty much Sylvia Plath and I think you don't dismiss it yeah. um, or dismiss her so I would say no but I think it adds something. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I actually I think if you you don't have to completely remove the author from your reading it, but I think if you place her one step back, a little further back than like than you might normally, um, having known this is semi autobiographical, I think it actually helps. Um, so you have it in the back of your mind, but you can appreciate the novel for what it is, as opposed to focusing on the plath aspect of it, you know, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. so, so yeah, so you don't necessarily have to, but I, I do agree with you. Um, but, but I think the setting, um, now it was when she was writing it, she was writing it semi-autobiographically. So she was writing about the setting in a time that really happened to her. But I think the setting of the 1950s, the setting of New York city and then suburban Boston is vital to this in a way that other novels set around this time or other novels of this sort of genre, genre as Trebek <laughs> would say, 
um, necessarily aren't necessarily the same case. Like, I think we can make a, a case for the catcher and the rye being set in a more contemporary time, and it's still kind of working in some regard. Um, this, I think you could set it today, but the fact that it takes place in the 1950s, which is known for being so conservative, um, and known for being the, the height of the woman going to college to get the MRS degree type of thing. And, and, um, I think it's really, really important to that because it's as much as it is a confessional piece about, somebody's mental health journey it's a satire in some way but a, very much a takedown of the the height of this 50s culture of you know proper ladies and, and how they were supposed to behave and the expectations of women and the way women were looked upon um, for the various things they did I mean what do you think about that with the setting? Yeah, some of that doesn't work. I think women have more sexual freedom mm -hmm. than they did back then. I think potentially if you wanted to update it, you could, you know, throw abortion in there. Yeah. Um, since that's getting, a, getting some sort of makeover, who knows? And I, I think the the way to kill oneself might change i think there are i don't know more options i don't know i think it'd be or you could just stay with with what you had but then also the academic rigor or the intensity in the scholastic setting i think has gotten worse mm -hmm. since then so that would be something that would be a, a bit heightened but other than that yeah i think it's mostly Involving her sex, basically, and just being a woman in that time is different than being a woman in this time, though, unfortunately, there are some similarities. Yeah. yeah, but you can do more with a woman's character of, you know, I, I think I agree with you here because I was thinking of like, you know, she she has an honest conflict within her about the fact that, you know, she is feels trapped in the idea that her path has been laid out for her by a societal expectation that she does not necessarily want to fulfill motherhood and careers for women, quote unquote. Right. Mm -hmm. And considering the fact that she is in a internship program in the New York part of it with all of these girls who come from higher class backgrounds than she does, you know, she, she kind of acknowledges like even pretty, pretty early on that she's the, she feels like an odd, you know, the odd duck in the, in the, in the mm -hmm. group. Um, because she's there being essentially being sponsored and she's a working, you know, and I'm not saying working class girl as a way of being condescending, but just in that, just to, to situate like her particular social standing compared to the other girls <laughs> i i somewhere on the question sheet i may have erased it at one point in the document that we have i wrote that there were times when i was reading this and i was reading the scenes where they're all sitting around the the table and eating or, or gathering or whatever and i kept thinking of all of the cotillion scenes in uh she's the man 
where oh, you know chew like you have yeah. a secret and all that because they they reminded yep. me of like essentially like I know they were internships as a magazine, but it felt like some sort of junior league type of thing when when they were doing all the social events and stuff because it was, seemed like very white glove, um, very you know very posh and everything, and that has faded a little bit. Um, but, the, but it has been replaced by the whole, make sure that you are being seen in the right way in a culture like that. And like in print magazine work and, or, or anything that involves um, a lot of visibility in, in, especially in New York city, you know? So it's not like, it's not like, um, internships at, I don't think Mademoiselle is even being published anymore, but internships at like Cosmopolitan or Vogue can belly up to the bar or something like, or, or whatever, um, there is still an expectation placed on the women there, but I think here it was even more strict than it is today. And and her class, um, her social standing ties into it quite a bit. And I uh, I thought it was refreshing to hear somebody from that era talk about like I don't want any of this. Like she clearly wanted, I don't know, um, to to write. Or yep. to, to be an editor or something. She wanted to be a career woman. And a career woman was not something that you, in the, in, on the same level as the men in the places, not something you, you ever really saw in 1953. Yeah, it reminds me of a film I really like called Mona Lisa Smile. Mm. With Julia Roberts and some people. And that's definitely, yeah, they go to these colleges and come out Mrs. Um, and she's trying to be like, there are other ways, but no, that, that is almost the most disheartening thing because she feels like this societal pressure, which is certainly, you know, me as a single woman, like I definitely feel that as well (laughs) coming from people, which is just, Oh, why does that exist? And everywhere she turns, you know, it's kind of like this nightmare for her and she only wants to write and there's pressure from all sides and then she doesn't get into the program that she wants. And so that's just completely devastating. So, oh, yeah, it's like, man, if I can't do the one thing I want, do I have to sort of resign myself to this other thing that I don't want to do so when you're talking about her personal biography and getting married and having a kid i'm like man esther would hate that so i feel like she's able to use esther Mm -hmm. to you know speak to the the path not not traveled potentially like could she have stayed out of it but yeah sometimes it's just like it's you're forced to do it so yeah and and i'll I'll get to the i'll get to the class aspect of it a little bit more down the line when we talk about her stay in the hospital because the book essentially has like three acts you know there's the there's the portion in new york there's the portion when she's at home uh, in massachusetts and there's the portion in the psychiatric hospital and i'm kind of like covering it like bit by bit here um, so staying in New York City, um, there's a you've mentioned her scholarship and you've mentioned her success. and We've mentioned college a couple of times. How much of her identity is tied up in that academic success? And is, does this end up being a cautionary tale for those voted most likely to succeed? I'm a bit conflicted about that, mainly because she seems OK. Mm-hmm. There there are portions in the novel. I would say it's just the first portion, yeah. the portion where I can tell, OK, she's you know, there's some stress there. There's something lurking. 
but it doesn't seem so bad that she's like on the verge of either a breakdown or killing herself. Mm-hmm. It's it's only later that it becomes really apparent. And so you can tell, yeah, how high an achiever she is. Seems like she graduated early, really top of her class. But she's also able to finagle her way out of things. <laughs> I mean, that whole episode about, I guess she took physics, but she's trying to get out of chemistry or vice versa. Yeah. And she basically convinces them, like, look at how good I was at this other class. It's not that I don't care about it, but da 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 And she still audits it, potentially. So... I don't know. I don't know if only because is that really what leads to this sort of um, this breakdown? I mean, it could have added to it for sure, Mm -hmm. but it seems like she manages it well. I think if she if my image of what a type of person like that would have looked like, she would have taken that class and had that breakdown. But the fact that she was able to get out of it and manage okay, that's why I'm conflicted. I think that, yes, she is too kind of grade-minded, and what is she getting for the grade? What sort of wisdom or knowledge is she getting out of those experiences? That's, I think, a cautionary tale, but I'm a bit on the fence about everything else because, again, it seems like she's kind of doing okay, but it's so subtle. Yeah, I think it's subtle when she's in New York because of just the setting that she is in, and I think that she is more overwhelmed at times when she's in New York than, say – um, when she is home and clearly she's dwelling on it a lot more because she, I think I get the feeling that at various times she sits down, she's trying to write a novel at one point and she, she writes like all of a sentence. She can't get anything out. She's been wearing the same clothes the whole time. She's clearly depressed. And this is where she is in the bell jar, so to speak. And I think it's with mm-hmm. her that she should have made something of herself by now. Like, you know, the sort of like, I have failed at my, what I set out to do because I had to come back home and now I'm just kind of bumming around the house. And, um, yeah, but when she's in New York, I think you're right. I think, I think you, you see her use a lot of what she's, what she's very good at to her success, which it's interesting how the people around her in New York, in the internship program react to her. Um, it's not like she's not disliked, I think she's dismissed quite a bit here and there. I think they kind of side eye her because she is, again, because she's not fitting into the mold, so to speak. Um, and I think she is a bit socially awkward. And I think that also contributes to it, especially around around the men, because um, she always seems to be like the the fifth wheel or the third wheel in in a. In, in a date or on a date night or something like, you know, she she's dragged out by her friend to go like early on. Doreen meets some like they're on their way to some sort of dinner or something and they stop off at a bar or whatever. And Doreen meets some like radio DJ. And instead of going to the this party, they go to this guy's apartment her Doreen, this DJ and some one of his friends or something. And, and Esther never really nothing happens to her. But I, I get the implication that Doreen is sexually assaulted. And um, and then there's another incident later on that I talked about in the summary. But, like, you know, she's – Esther seems overwhelmed quite a bit by having to deal with the social aspect of everything in the, uh, in the, in the Ladies' Day internship program. I, I don't know if I'm 
overthinking that or reading too much into it or not? I I have mixed feelings about this as mm-hmm. well. If only because it seems like she has a couple girls that seem to enjoy her company. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if they're because you see her reactions to them yeah. and that she she could basically not give a flip about either of them, but she sticks around with them. But yeah, Doreen and then I can't remember who the other woman is. Um the one I think that gets sick with her when they go to the oh, movie. Oh yeah, I can't remember her name. <laughs> so those were kind of the, the two people that you heard a lot about. But it's it's interesting because I think she is an awkward person. I think that she probably has some social anxiety, but she I feel like she's able to in a unique way fit in Mm -hmm. inadvertently but she's probably real stressed about it and while she's in it because i'm just thinking about those episodes or that one episode where she was the youngest person on the hall in college and all the seniors made her answer the phone constantly but then when she had when a guy visited her then all of a sudden they treated her with respect and and started chatting her up so it was like a quick (laughs) change of fate and then she was accepted but she was probably still stressed out about it Mm. so i yeah i think she's generally unfortunately just an awkward person but she yeah her financial background is different from everybody else and what she wants to do i think is different from everybody else but she kind of goes along with the flow because i guess she's a bandwagoner um but i don't i don't know if that is because she's not She's like independent internally, but externally she feels a pressure to do what the other people are mm-hmm. doing, which I, I which I can totally get for sure. So, yes. So I, I like partially agree with you, but I just think it's something. Some of this stuff is like, what is actually going on here for me? Yeah, I am um, trying to. Find the uh, the name of the girl she went to. It was Betsy. It might have been Betsy that she. It was Betsy that she went to the uh, movies with, and they both got okay. sick of the movie theater. Uh, okay. Yeah, you know, I think I, I really don't have much add to add to here, except add to what you just said, except for the fact that she is. I mean, granted, Plath based her on herself, so she knows the character mm-hmm. very well. It's much more nuanced than a single note like, "Oh, they bully her," or. She's overwhelmed, with awkward, and stuff. Like she's definitely socially awkward, and she definitely gets. Um, I think JC is the name of the the woman who's uh, kind of running the thing, or her editor, or whatever. And uh, right. pardon, pardon the uh, the the expression, but there are points in in the time where she's, especially the first couple of chapters, where JC is outright just um, uh hostile to her or snipes at her uh, or or is a you know a b word to her you know i mm-hmm. mean and and it's um and and i you see it as a way of showing the way and this is not I'm, i own a stereotype here but there are a lot of women who act toward other women this way in the workplace, either as a way of quote tough love or something, or they feel like they're competing with them for something like that. So 
Um, and, you know, as for every woman who does that to another woman, there's one who's also supportive, you know, so it's not like it's not like all people. But she's showing that and she's showing um, she there's a lot of complexities to this character and, and the way she interacts with people where it's just not one note, you know. So I, th- mm-hmm. I, th- I agree with you because there are things where I'm like, yeah, she is really socially awkward. And there are times where I'm like, she does seem a little overwhelmed by like what's going on with what here and there. But you're right. There's also like her inner monologue is really funny at times and witty or like the disdain <laughs> she has for the person she's dealing with or whatever. She's like, oh, you know, that that's sort of like um, my favorite one mm-hmm. of my favorite bits. Now, this is the, the, she gets sick as a result. They all get sick. But the food poisoning scene is funny. Mm-hmm. And. It's funny because, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's vomit and poop, but, um, but it's vomit they're all like, they're yeah. again, they're all like, chew like you have a secret. And she is like scarfing everything down. She's like, I'm going to eat all their caviar. I'm like, Ugh, caviar. But, yeah. but I, I appreciate that because it's so like, ooh, let's all be like, and she's like, yeah, F this. Give me the food. And I just I love those little barbs toward the the propriety of the propriety of the properness of of society, mm-hmm. because it's just like she's pointing this stuff out in a funny way. You're just like, this is so stupid, you know, like, so I, I really did enjoy enjoy that. I actually do like the scene where she chucks all the clothes out of the out of the window of the apartment. Yeah, that was sort of that was that was the yeah. end. And then if it was funny because afterwards she had to borrow <laughs> clothing in order to go home but yeah i think I, I felt like it was really symbolic too of just like i'm done with this city yeah and letting it and all go away yeah so and she's not like the hints at the suicide there's not really a lot of hints at suicide in the beginning of the book there is this opening bit that she's talking about the rosenbergs and it's supposed to be mm-hmm. timely because this was the same. She was in New York the same time that Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed. So, and that was front page news. So, you know, she's situating us with that reference, but I think she's also kind of cluing us into the novel's exploration, fixation on death in some way or another, you know? Um, and, and so it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of, it, it's, she, she says it and then she kind of gets put in the back of your mind, um, because then they get sick there. There's a, there's a little bit of, it, it, you know, the New York is a little bit of comical that, in that parts. There's also some really harrowing stuff though. You know, she is, she is raped by this country club dude and she breaks the guy's nose. So woohoo. Is she so you? I saw that in the show notes, and I didn't actually get that she was raped. I definitely sexually sexually assaulted. Okay, so maybe I'm Uh, um, maybe I'm using the word rape in the wrong way, and she is assaulted for sure. Like her dress is ripped. I mean, her breasts are like hanging out. Um, I don't. I mean, if we're like using the like the term, I always think, I guess, of rape as like penetration. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think anything on the lower half happened. Not to say that this wasn't a really bad scene and it was very disturbing. Um, But I I mean, I could be wrong, but I just didn't. And if I am, I'd be. uh, Do you remember what page is on? I'm looking for it. 
Or any chapter or anything? Yeah, because she was going with this guy named Constantine who was like a translator at the uh, at the UN. She sees Buddy. Here, I'm sorry. I'm. I, I will cut this. That's okay. That might eight, it might be hard for us seven, to find. Eight, um, the ground soared and struck me with a soft shock. Marco waited until I half rose. Then he put both my hands on my shoulders and flung me back. My dress, your dress. The mud oozed and adjusted itself to my shoulder blades. Your dress. Marco's face lowered cloudily over mine. A few drops of spit stuck my struck my lips. Your dress is black and the dirt is black as well. Then he threw himself face down as if he would grind his body through me and into the mud. It's happening, I thought. It's happening. If I just lie here and do nothing, it will happen. Marco set his teeth to the strap on at my shoulder and tore my sheath to the waist. I saw the glimmer of bare skin like a pale veil separating two bloody-minded adversaries. Slut! The words hissed by my ear. Slut! The dust cleared, and I had a full bite, of, full view of the battle. I began to writhe and bite. Marco waved me to the earth. Slut! I gouged at his leg with the sharp heel of my toe. He turned, fumbling for the hurt. Then I fisted my fingers together and smashed them at his nose. It was like hitting the steel pl- plate of a battleship. Marco sat up. I began to cry. Marco pulled out a white handkerchief and dabbed his nose. Blackness like ink spread over the pale cloth. I sucked at my salty knuckles. I want Doreen... Marco stared off across the golf links. I want to read. I want to go home. Sluts, all sluts. Marco seemed to be talking to himself. Yes or no, it is always the same. And uh, and then it kind of goes on from there. So I don't think he actually succeeds what he's doing. I think it's... um, I think it's an attempt. So I think it is. A, it is a it is a sexual assault, but it's an attempted right. rape. So just to get there, it's a very well described scene of yeah. something very awful. That, like I said, it's it's one of her last nights in New York. I think it's like her last night in New York, and or one of them. And um, earlier in the novel, her Doreen and a couple of the guys, these guys, end up at this guy's apartment, and the one guy's like dancing with Doreen. And he's got her basically like half naked and slung over his shoulder and everything. You kind of get the implication that you know they sleep together and i don't know if it's 100 percent consensual um it's like and it's ambiguous and i think on purpose is this sort of like she's just going to go along with it even though she might not necessarily want to which was very mm-hmm. of the time you know yeah. so especially since she returns back to the dorm or wherever yeah and is crying yeah and she's clearly drunk, so that of course messes mm-hmm. with emotions. But um, she was really wanting Esther, yeah. so I felt like something did. Happen. Yeah, and she she was, from what I remember, that scene at the beginning, Doreen's drunk, really beyond the point that she could like give consent to anything. So, you know, mm-hmm. um, which honestly, in 1953, I, I wasn't alive in 1953, and I'm st- and I am I'm generalizing here. I'm pretty sure that a lot of people would not have blinked an eye at that in 1953. You know, the idea that like he got this girl drunk and you know had sex with her I'm, because I'm assuming they, the two of him and Doreen had sex, and and like people would have been like mm-hmm. you know, shrugged their shoulders. This is a little more violent, um, and good for her for like getting that getting that punch in uh, because. Uh, but you know the use of that word "slut" and and such. Um, it's I think it's a really powerful scene because it is describing something that I would imagine a I really have to imagine that a lot of women have gone through that 
and the misogyny associated with what what he was doing to her too you know like like the 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 hatred spewing out of his mouth as he's doing that you know just calling her a slut repeatedly um it's mm-hmm. it's, it's i mean it's all it's like duh, panneries it's awful but it is it's awful and plath writes it incredibly well and she does have kind of a hang-up about sex through most of the novel i don't think this causes it but i think it does contribute it to it well, because there was stuff going on beforehand. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Buddy or whatever his name yeah, was. Yeah, Buddy. <laughs> and Constantine. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that even her saying, like, if I lie here, it'll happen. Yeah. Like, clearly, it's almost like her virginity is a burden to mm-hmm. her. And and she wants to, to get rid of it, uh, even potentially in a, in a terrible way. But, um, yeah, it, it yeah. <laughs> Sex is ever yeah. present. Which is interesting because, again, this is the 1950s, a decade known for its chastity, right? You know, the, the whole mm. woman having sex before marriage. <gasps> again, slush, you know, that, that, that whole idea was, you know, even though it's probably pretty clear that, you know, there were there were way more women who were entering marriage without their virginity than than the society would have you believe. Um but yeah, it's again, it's it's interesting. It's interesting that push and pull between her and the the life that she wants and the life that she's been told she has to leave and lead. And also, there's something symbolic of this, perhaps, in that it is a country club. It is a window into a world that she has been kind of invited because it kind of sponsored into. You know, like um, like I said, I made the comparison to the debutantes with the interns, but she, you know, they are all. There are, a lot of them are upper class and a lot of them can afford these things and a lot of them. So the whole country club aspect of it, it's another part of this life. And she is seeing really how and a lot of people aspire to this, right? Like it's, it's one of those things where like, you know, I want to have it made and everything. And you walk into this world and it's just disgusting, you know? So I think, I yeah. think that's part of Plath's, um, Plath's criticism. She does this in a very, very stark, violent way. Um, do you think it's necessary? You know, we've had this conversation before, and I know you are eventually going to get around to preparing a whole discussion on this, which I'm very looking forward to hearing. One um, day. Yep. But sexual assault and rape in literature and mm-hmm. and popular culture, obviously, like movies and things like that. And, you know, I I don't I think sometimes it's used gratuitously. Or that, like, when you really break certain movies or shows or things down, it's like, does it really need to be there? I want to ask that question here. Does Is this vital to the plot of the book? Whether or not it happened in Plath's own life, let's just remove, remove Plath from the equation here as the semi-autobiographical thing. Is it, is it necessary? I don't think so. I think this one can easily be removed. Mm-hmm. It's mostly about the male female dynamics yeah. in Esther's life that the hang up about sex, this burden of virginity. And I think you could have just had a string of really uneventful dates uh, that really don't go anywhere. I mean, yeah, you had Constantine, you had the sailor that she met briefly, um, the mathematician, everything. So you could have just had another one like that, that was just like a dud or didn't go anywhere. 
I think this one just like heightens or shows what sort of creeps are out mm-hmm. there and is a really bad episode for Esther that she didn't really need to go through, I think. Yeah. And at the same time, I agree with you, but at the same time, I think there's something to the one, the, what Doreen has at the beginning of the book that it, it's different. It's like, it, it's, it's a, it's a biting criticism of, you know, these, this is what men are allowed to get away with. And I think that actually lands a little bit more necessary because it also talk, it also kind of clues you into her own dynamic with, with her friend, you know, whether or not she believes she's a good friend, you know, like there's, it's, it's kind of a haze through the first part of the book and, and whether or not her and Doreen have a, like a genuine friendship or they're there for each other, or they just happen to be roommates and stuff. And, 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 Doreen, you know, getting taken advantage of. Um, I think that you probably, I guess you could probably change that a little bit. It might not be as necessary, but I think it's a little more necessary than what, what we just looked at too. Yeah. And I would agree that it was ambiguous Doreen's mm-hmm. that relationship, I guess yeah. I'll say, but the fact that Doreen was at her bedside helping her after the food poisoning and even said you're the first person I checked yeah. on and and like she gave her second helping of soup. I felt like that kind of spoke volumes. Yeah. yeah. And she has, you know, JC aside, she has some genuinely positive relationships with women in this novel. You know, um, I believe mm-hmm. it. I believe it passed the Bechdel test on more than one occasion um, because she has like later, we'll talk about Joan uh, later on. Like she has Joan where there is a, there's a friendship there and, and it is heavily implied that Joan might have a thing for her. Um, and she has Doreen and even Betsy, like, you know, the, there's, there's some, you know, some backbiting and things like that, but there are some genuine friendships or, or, or positive female relationships in the book in a way that, um, I think that sends a good or just illustrates a good uh, makes a good point sends a good message or illustrates it in a, in a good light what do you think yeah I would agree I, I think you you spoke a little while ago that there are sometimes these tense dynamics in office relationships or just out in the real world where women aren't supportive of other women, which I think is just, that's one of the things that just really annoys me (laughs) in the world because we are at such a disadvantage in, you know, um, in job culture anyways, that I feel like we really need to be supporting one another. So to, to see that there, there aren't, you know, super catty people everywhere in this novel, but there are actually people that care for Esther whether Esther or not care, you know, cares for them. I can't yeah. tell, but I, I do enjoy it. Yeah. Because she even yells at Joan. Doesn't she say like, I want nothing to do yeah. with you, but Joan keeps coming back around, which is good. So I am glad. And sometimes it's that whole, I'm going to make a Spider-Man <laughs> reference. <laughs> so only some people will get it. But you know, after Gwen Stacy died and Mary Jane went to visit Peter, he yells at mm-hmm. her. And I, I realize this is a man, female thing. And says like, get out leave and she chooses to stay yeah. so in a sense like i 
see that a little bit, that maybe some of these people can see what Esther's going through, the tough time that she's having. Mm -hmm. And even though she might not be necessarily good to them, they show the affection and, and regard to her and try to care for her a little bit in, in whatever clumsy way that they're able to. So I, I would. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you put it really, really well. Um, I remember that panel from amazing. (laughs) Um, yeah. And then, and then she goes home and and it's a really, really good question here. Um, is Esther on a steady decline the entire time she's in NYC or is she pretty even? And then it takes going home to cause the catalytic event that eventually pushes her to her suicide attempt. Yeah, that was me because (laughs) I wondered as I was reading it, whether this was always in her mind or like I said, I I feel like in New York city, there was just something, it was subtle, like, you know, uh, scratching beneath Mm -hmm. the surface, but all of a sudden when she came up. So I think, I feel like she was in a low spot in New Mm -hmm. York, but it was pretty stable or like a stable line. But once she got home and she didn't, get the offer that she was looking for. And then I think there's also something about sometimes returning home feels like a disappointment. Like, oh man, you know, I'm back here and, you know, living with a parent potentially. Uh, And I don't know what the, what the society or culture was like back then living with the parent. But now, you know, some people, I talk to people who are with their parents and they're like, oh man, you know, I'm living with my parents again. I'm like, sometimes you have to, you know, it's financially stable and they love you. (laughs) So you should just be happy about it. But I just feel like, that was the moment that there was a big shift and that she started um, thinking about these things because it just seemed to come on really quickly. Like she's got this razor Mm -hmm. blade. She attempted to, well, she had like a rope, you know, she, the, the pills, like all of this, I thought, Oh man, for me, it somewhat came out of nowhere. Even though, like I said, there's something scratching beneath the surface. I think that one of the things about it is that she is it is there, but she is functioning when she is in New York. And um, when you have a mental when you have anxiety, depression, something like that, you can there is like a kind of a, a an aspect or a version of it that is a functional anxiety, depression. And mm-hmm. part of that is that you can go through your everyday life and you can do your job. And like, so, so it, it does not look like you laying around in bed all the time. Right. And I think this right. one was going on in New York, partially because she had a job to do. She was essentially, she was like distracted, right? Like she was like the depression was there, but, but she was able to distract herself from being overwhelmed by it because she had the job she was Doing some things that she did enjoy because she did enjoy the writing and editing thing, even though there are there's like total sexism at at that magazine, et cetera, et cetera. And she had to deal with a lot of the different things. But there's so much going on that she doesn't have the time for it to really take hold. And then she goes from New York to the quiet suburbs outside of Boston and things grind to mm-hmm. a halt. And I think that is the that's the that's where the where the the switch flips because she now has all this time to herself and she's going to try to write a novel she's got writer's block and it just starts to pile on her 
mainly because she's now she's got time to think about it. She's not distracted by all the things around her and, and the things that are around her are either f- way too familiar to her. Um, she shows the disdain for quite a bit of it. Her mother is awful. Her <laughs> mother is so awful to her. <laughs> and uh. all of that adding up, adding up and sitting alone for so long, it's just, I think that's why it happens so quickly because she goes from, it's a, it's like a complete juxtaposition, it's a complete 180 of setting. And I think that her the, her depression, if we're going to personify it, is let out of its cage at that point, or is, or is, there's nothing to hold it back, right? So it comes full on. It's like, hey, hey, I'm here, and guess what? This is what we're going to do. It's interesting. Unfortunately, the mother is not helpful in that she wants it to go away and to be as if it never oh, yeah. happened. And so it's like she needs to be supported, but isn't supporting her daughter. Her um, mother's. Which th- those are those are yeah. hard scenes, which I can totally understand, you know, someone being set like really upset that their child is going through this. But it was more like she wanted it to not be existing rather than yeah. walking alongside her through this. But I think that's just where mental health awareness was at the time. <laughs> I would hope that it would be better. Uh, but we also know that we still have those sorts of things. Happening. We have. um her mother strikes me as the what will people think if this ha- if if they find out that this is happening type of people and um that attitude still persists to this day i think that we are becoming more and more accepting of the fact that people uh, people are more willing to seek treatment people are more willing to talk about it and be open about it which is really really important um i think men have a long way to go with it <laughs> so i don't think enough men are coming to terms with the fact that they have mental health issues. Um, Mm. But it is certainly leaps and bounds beyond the 1950s. um, And because we get Dr. Gordon. So she sees Dr. Gordon before the suicide attempt. And this guy, but that's the other thing. And women listening to this would hopefully understand what I say, that there are a lot of male doctors who dismiss women when they come to them with problems. And I think this is a very, very good illustration of it. Even a psychologist? I mean, especially back in the 1950s. (laughs) But I think he's so dismissive of her and it's, it's just a sexist attitude of him, like, you know, kind of acting like she's wasting his time, you know? And I'm like, Oh, whatever you'll get. He's, he's just very dismissive of her. And women have faced that quite a bit in, in the medical and even the mental health community over the, over the decades it's improving. But, um, you know, just today, I was I was reading a, um, an article in the Washington Post about a woman who had like a volleyball sized tumor removed from her ovary, and it had gotten that big because the she kept coming to the doctor with pain in her stomach, and the doctors were like, "Ah, eh, whatever, it's cramps." They were like, they they really were dismissing her, and she finally was referred to a gynecologist, and the gynecologist did an ultrasound. And was like, "Oh my god, I think you have an ovarian system. We should get it removed, or whatever, or something." And they did the surgery, but I was just like, you know, this is a case of modern day case of male doctors just like whatever on it. And so I see that in Dr. Gordon and I'm like, you know, Plath pointing it out back in the 1960s. I'm like, you know, 
I, it's, it's one of the aspects of this book that I find really important because I find this to be a feminist work and maybe I'm misjudging it, but I do find it to have a lot of feminist aspects to it in its criticisms of society, especially the sexism found within society. What do you think? Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I think Sylvia as well as Esther mm-hmm. tell things how they are. They're not sugarcoating what they have gone through and what women go through and the societal pressures put upon Mm -hmm. them and that, you know, they don't have many options or much of a voice. So, uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, and, and I think Esther tries, I mean, she's rubbing against the cage or or pushing against it, trying to, to to get out of there. And and I assume likewise Sylvia, Mm -hmm. but yeah, having a, adding, uh, having a critical lens against men, I think, is good. And it's not, you know, it's. I don't feel like it's sexist. I think it's just like this is how yeah. it was and no one is willing to speak up for what that's like. I love the fact that with Buddy, she calls him a hypocrite. And that's exact, you know, and, and then there were she was talking with other people. Maybe it was another it might have been another guy or her her hallmates of saying you know would you date someone who had lost her would you date a guy who had lost his virginity or whatever and she's like well you know that girl i think or the other Mm. guy i can't remember but it said you know it's different for for guys and i'm like oh my gosh yes that's That's a classic double standard right yeah you know that the guy's yeah, that the guys can sleep around, but when the girls do it, oh, you know, well, yeah, she's a yeah. slut. So I, I'm glad she's doing it, and and these are things that now we're trying to rage against as women. So she's a a forward thinker, I would say, but just really unfortunate things, you know. <laughs> yeah, and it's not. And the thing is, it's like unlike some other novels of this um, that are feminist, it is not a novel of liberation. I mean, on some level it is, but like, it's not a, I'm setting off on my own or I'm having a sexual awakening or, or something. She's still very trapped throughout the entire novel. And so it's her, um, shouting from that inside that cage that were the bell jar, right? You know, it's, it's her being inside that. So it's, it's a feminist work in that regard. It's showing what is happening to people as opposed to the kind of empowerment that comes through liberation and such. Um, mm-hmm. you know, let's talk about the title, you know, the, she, she says that like, she feels like she's under a bell jar, you know, and stifling in it. And if people, if there are guys listening to this who are comic book readers, picture her trapped under like the bottle city of Candor's lid. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's basically what we're looking at. Um, sure. So what's the symbolism of the bell jar? What, yeah. why call it the bell jar? You know, that is interesting. I, yeah, I don't have my girlfriend's book. Um, I got it from the, <laughs> from the library, but it was interesting that I got it. And there's this little tab, you know, those little post-it yeah. tabs on this page. And I'm reading once I finally got to, I'm like, oh, this person before me or whoever was talking about the uh, the bell jar and how claustrophobic it is. Um, so 
So the symbolism of just that shape of it? Mm-hmm. I guess in general, or the setting of it, like, you know, or, 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 or putting yourself yeah, under Yeah, because it. that happened, yeah, this happens, the first time she mentioned it anyways was in regards to, uh, she was traveling home, she thought about jumping out. Having when the car stopped, jumping out of the car and jumping off of a bridge, and that woman, Mrs. Mm-hmm. Guinea, is there. Um, and I would be sitting under the same glass bell jar, stewing in my own sour yeah. air. Well, I feel like a bell jar. You have there's like the the perception that there's space mm-hmm. in there. And you can kind of see things around you, but they're also distorted. And it seems like maybe you've got enough room to to breathe, but you use up all that air pretty quickly. So I think it's almost the idea that there's like there's some freedom there. Maybe you'll be okay, but in the end, actually, things kind of close in around you more quickly than you would Mm -hmm. like. Um, And even when she's a bit better you know after her more successful electroshock therapies the bell jar still exists yeah. it's just hovering above mm-hmm. her so it's it's still like this looming threat of um yeah being suffocated um whether that's like society suffocating yeah. her or her, her own failed um yeah her mental health her own failed ambitions i think there's a lot going on with there uh with that and there was some sort of like the ending uh of my book that i had from the library talked about sylvia plath and they actually inserted some quotes from this novel into her life story and even mentioned that you know maybe about the the bell jar and everything so it's just who it's sort i would think that it was something that plath lived with every day yeah yeah, and um, do you feel like there's other? I no, mean, what I do think you think you, it's symbolic. I think you of? covered all of it. I was, you know, when you were talking about that, I thought of the depression, the mental health, and that's where you know. So, but I think the the multi because the book is multifaceted. We talked about it being a feminist work. We talked about it being a work about mental health and relationships and things like that. And I think then therefore it's it's all of those things and how stifle mm-hmm. and how they all suffocate her at one point or another. Um, and I think she's under it for a long time when she's at home. And then she gets, you know, she, the, the suicide attempt, it, it, it's, it, she finds a cellar, like she had, Plath, I said, like I said in her bio, she crawled under the porch of her mother's house. Um, so I'd imagine her, how her mother, I'm picturing a front porch of a house and then it's got that sort of thatch pattern fencing under like right by where it hits the ground, you know, uh, to keep kind of animals out and stuff like that. Um, and I would imagine that it's probably just dirt under mm-hmm. it's like a crawl space. And she, I think she crawled in there, took the bottle of sleeping pills and just expected to die. And she was eventually found. And I think that's what's happening here. And it's surreal. And then it becomes this kind of journey. And, and this is where, um, when she eventually eventually ends up at the hospital, the, the one psychiatric hospital, but she's transferred around to a couple of places, and it she doesn't meet Mrs. Not Mrs. Nolan, sorry, Doctor Nolan, and she doesn't get better treatment until Philomena Guinea, her 
sponsor from the scholarship essentially sponsors her into a much better facility than she had originally been placed. So there's a mental health treatment and social class statement being made here. If you can afford the best treatment, you will more than likely be, I don't know if cured is the best word, but you could be released, you could function, you could go back to functioning in normal society, but it's way more dicey if you're poor. And I think she's making that statement as well. Maybe not completely overtly. Do you think that's true of a of other countries like where there's what is Universal it called? Um, yeah, like do you think this would be the same thing in Canada, for example? I don't know. Um, I think that every country has its deficiency in its mental health care. I'm sure that in in Canada, mm-hmm. let's like let's talk Canada and England. I'm sure that their their country's health systems have their faults, and I'm sure that their mental health systems are um, might be as spotty in places as ours is. But I don't know if if there's a if there's a correlation between the upper class. I mean, perhaps there is. Perhaps they have a little more pull. It's very. It might still be very possible to hire people privately. You know. Um, I'm probably mm-hmm. stereotyping here. I'm picturing some really, really rich person in, in like England or something hiring somebody who will keep this quiet, you know, so they can get really, really good treatment sure. or something, or put them off to a place that will be accepting. So I'm, I'm sure that the strata, I'm sure that the social strata does affect the way people get treatment in some regard or another in a country like England or Canada where there is a universal healthcare system. I it just everything in the United States seems exacerbated <laughs> because of the how how terrible our healthcare system can be to people who don't have the money to afford mm-hmm. it. And I think about rehab facilities too, which is yeah, a similar. Because I think of all the celebrities that have gone into mm-hmm. rehab and they're just paying like top dollar. Mm-hmm. And part of it is I think for privacy, but it's just, you know, if only everyone could get <laughs> could get the best treatment, um, which is really sad. And, and I guess it's because a lot of it, I think, in this book is we're almost comparing apples to oranges, but we can compare apples to apples because she had electroshock therapy yeah. in one place. And then over here and even her second doctor was saying it should not have been like that. And and that's why she's like so freaked yeah. out. So, of course, you know, I, I there are oh man, there are some some patients that I've seen that will start crying because they don't want to go back to this one place and, and saying I was treated mm-hmm. awfully there. Like, oh, my gosh, why? Why is it like yeah, no. this? Why can't we treat human yeah. beings as a human being, yeah. you know? Yeah. And uh, actually, it's interesting to, to, to make comparisons. But, like, you know, we've read two novels now that have to deal with mental health in some way or another. We read The Catcher in the Rye. Um, and we've read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. Um is it a fair comparison? You know, like, like, should, should we take a look at these, like, should, with, with the breakdown of a person to their anxieties and their depression, um, we're Holden Caulfield and F- Esther Greenwood. Is that a fair comparison? Is she like a female Holden? Am I, you know, um, and is there, uh, is Plas depiction on par with what we see in Kesey's novel? 
Yeah, I thought a lot about I, I'll, I'll admit I didn't really think about Holden while I was reading this. But during this section, I was absolutely thinking about Wong Fu and mm. the Cuckoo's Nest, not only with the electroshock therapy, but also with their daytime activities and getting a pass to go outside. Because yeah. <laughs> remember, they went on that ship, I think. Yeah, yeah, boat. they went on the boat. <laughs> Yeah, so I I think because Nurse Ratchet isn't mm -hmm. around, <laughs> though there are yeah. some characters in the hospital, it's a bit. Uh, it seems a bit better, but again, money has given Esther better placement, and she shifted around mm -hmm. a lot, which I I would find disconcerting if I were a mental patient to not have stability or status quo. But the other <sighs> Holden. Um, maybe I'm just trying to think like he just drops everything in Lee's and she had that was a weird section where she was going to take a bus or a plane or a train or something and then ends up taking a bus back to her home. I was kind of scratching my mm -hmm. head about that. I guess she tries to also drop everything and leave, yeah. but I don't know. They feel different to me. I guess if you were just to write down. You know, the characteristics of it, they would probably on paper seem yeah. the same, but they feel different to me. No, I, I think I think you're right. I think there's there are different characters in the sense that um, Esther is a college student. She is uh, she doesn't have the rage that Holden outwardly expresses like the walking around and calling everybody phony type of, you know, her, she has more yeah. of a disdain. Like, I think they share a disdain for people. Um, she expresses, she's a lot more subtle about her, has a little more wits um, and, and, and can appear together a lot more than Holden, who I think to a number of people is just flat out weird. Um, you know, we talk about like, you know, some of the encounters he has with some other people and they're just like, what is up with you? Um, uh, and, but I think also that like, you know, you have a little bit of, you know, two, she's just beyond a teenager around the same time going through a similar, uh, going through a breakdown as well. And so I think that's where the comparison can come in, but it's not one-to-one -one, and I'm glad it's not one-to-one -one because you need more than one of this type of story. You know, like we all can't be the angry young man. We all can't be the angry young man who has a breakdown over, you know, all of the things that are going on in her life. And Holden's got a lot of baggage with him anyway because of Allie's death and, you know, all those other things. So you have Esther who is dealing with a host of other issues and, and dealing with it in a different way. So we can see how multi how how mental illness wears a lot of faces. And I think that's necessary too. Like you, you need this as part of that subgenre because it's so different from the catcher in the rye, even though the characters in some ways do feel a little bit similar, but in a good way, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think that's a knock against the book. Hmm. Do you think people, if they didn't like, why am I asking this question? <laughs> if they didn't like catcher in the rye, will do you think they'll also struggle um, with this one? I don't fully know. I think they might like her a little bit more because she's not as whiny as Holden Caulfield, you know, um, perhaps I think the character of Holden turns off a lot of people 
we've had I mean, we really want to we really want to go back to that 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 conversation about how I also think that um it it gets its it gets this i think some of the disdain for that novel is unfair but um because it just happens to be it, it got put on a pedestal you know i think that's part of the reason people hate that yeah. novel because because an entire generation because it was for years it was the only novel of that type in a sense right it was the one that everybody got assigned in high school so people now it's 2022 right so people have had a good 10 15, 20, 25 years of young adult novels, starting with like in 97, like The Perks of Being a Wallflower, that is essentially the catcher in the rye. And they don't need the catcher in the rye anymore. And, and people are still holding it up to be like, read this. And they, 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 they have a gut reaction sometimes, I think, to it of like, oh, I don't need that, you know, or whatever. Um, and are very dismissive of it or whatever. Um, or maybe I've been watching too many TikTok, uh, book talk TikToks. But mm. this, I think it's its own thing. So if you don't mm -hmm. like The Catcher in the Rye, it doesn't mean you're not going to like this. I, you might like mm -hmm. one and not the other, which is perfectly fine. I like both. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Do you think you'll give Jane Eyre another chance years yeah. from now? What a hypocrite yeah. you are. You uh, you can all read whatever you want. Oh, yeah. that's so kind of you. Um, okay. A couple of last couple of questions. Um, sure. Is Esther a mm. relatable female protagonist? Is she likable? Is she a character archetype? And we've talked a little bit about this, but let's kind of come down with our a definitive answer here. I personally don't think she's an archetype because I think with archetypes, I could easily describe mm. who they are and then also throw out like, it's like this, this and this. And in my opinion, I, I feel like she's pretty yeah. complex. And as I said, I think a couple of times, like I'm, you know, on the fence. I don't know how I feel about this. I'm not mm -hmm. sure. You know, so there are some things that could be blatantly obvious to some people. And for me, I feel like it's pretty subtle. So in my opinion, not an archetype. Is she relatable? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I'm well, this is a personal answer. So she's relatable. I relate to her. I, I think that. I've had, you know, some of those social anxieties. I felt pressure to like hang out with people, even though I really didn't want to, you know, d depression sometimes happens. So I, yeah, I totally get that. And then also wanting to be a high achiever. And if that doesn't happen, like being really disappointed in, in yourself, like the GRE that I took that it turned out, you know, five years later was actually yeah. okay. Cause it got me into grad go. school. But when I got the scores back initially, I was like, Oh man, you would not something. respond to my text. <laughs> did you, ask I texted how, did you. That you asked I, was in, I remember it was in Richmond oh, no. and I was in the MFA and I texted you and you did not get back to me for like three days. It might have been why well, I, I I'm so it's sorry okay. that I'm, I did just, it. I'm, it. It was you're okay, man. When I got those initial raw scores, which I in retrospect now I might have thought that the scale was different mm. than it was because I just was like so totally bummed, yeah. so bummed. I was happy with my essay, but anyways, I was like all I was yeah. all good with what what I needed for for yeah. grad school. So it turned out to be okay. But just to say that, yeah, I've had those experiences. And then is she likable? 
Um, in real life, I mean, she might be a, a difficult friend mm-hmm. to have, but someone that I think you need to keep pursuing mm-hmm. and it's probably a worthwhile relationship. Maybe you, you'll give more than you get, but I think we have some of those people in our lives and we know that they just have this, this lower capacity potentially to love than you do. And you just need to be there for them. That's just your role as a person. So in that like fictional world that we're in, I think that that is um, what it's like. I I think uh, maybe some people might be like, yeah, who is this? Because she is dismissive sometimes as some are for friends and she's not super kind. Um, She makes questionable choice i mean i do worry about like her really wanting to get rid of her virginity because i feel like it puts her in some some dicey situations and i was getting really nervous for her but um yeah overall i feel like it's it's not like i was struggling to get through this book i appreciate the relatability of her friends staying with her or reaching out to her when she is so down into her depression that she's pushing everybody away. Like I, it, that felt very, very real. Mm. To me. Um, because I, I know like, like you're saying, like, you know, just like thinking about my own dealings with mental health, especially over the last few years and like entire periods where I just don't want to be around anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. And, you know, like I'm, I'm terrible at keeping touch, touch with people anyway. So it's just like, you know, all of a sudden it's like, where is everybody? And you, they're the loneliness you feel, that you want to blame yourself for at the same time you're like you know it's just it it's it could be very very tough and you know you you eventually do resurface but it's just you know so so having that you can see um i think in some ways she is likable i like her wit i really find her funny um yeah i don't think she's an archetype either i think However, people who love Sylvia Plath have made her or Plath an archetype. Like they've used her as like the template for something. Um, but I think Esther and Plath and Plath, the way Plath wrote Esther was never to be a character archetype. And this was supposed to be a fully fleshed out three dimensional character um, and not a not a trope, you know. So. Mm hmm. Um, two more questions. Uh, first, let's talk about Joan. Um, and the oh, were yeah. you surprised when Joan committed suicide? Did you pick up on her possibly having feelings for Esther? Is this an example of bury your gaze? Oh no, I didn't even think about that. It's interesting that I don't know if I picked up on that that when I first read it. Um, because Joan was in that other woman's Mm -hmm. room and it's very subtle, but it's like, well, something was going on here because there's like a Uh giggle and Joan was in the bed or something like, okay. And then I don't know if it was then, but at one point Esther was saying like, I don't know how it works, you know, with two same sex (laughs) couples. I don't, you know, how, how does that even work? She doesn't want to think about it. So. I I I don't know if I picked up on Joan liking mm-hmm. Esther. I think that I took it as a actual female uh-huh. friendship. Um, so I'll be interested to hear your evidence. I believe you 
I just I did not read that. Um, and I wonder if because I was I was really surprised at her killing mm-hmm. herself when that was found out because everything seemed fine question mark like she had this place to live and um yeah it seemed like she she was on the up and up and then esther lost her virginity and then all of a sudden joan is back in the hospital and then she's missing suddenly so it's very quick and i was i was shocked and i was trying to piece together whether or not that had anything to do with esther because esther was kind of on her way out as well so i don't know if there was some stability with joan being outside but knowing where esther was if if she had feelings for her but yeah but you know what that's true or that's at least what we're told in regards to people who commit suicide that they seem really good you know right before everything seems fine and so it's really shocking that that happened um Ooh, yeah, that that really uh, that was an intense moment. And it's interesting that that happened to someone close to to Esther. So she was able to make it more personal because I think everything else when she's talking about suicide had been very like degrees removed from her when she was speaking of it or her own attempts. But yeah, tell tell me what what did you see in regards to some lesbian activity? I, I picked up on the fact that Joan was gay. I. The, I got the whole Joan had a thing for her from the summary. I kind of thought I saw it maybe, but it wasn't like really overt to me. Um, I think she mm-hmm. might have been a little attracted to her. It, it's interesting how I it, I didn't see the suicide coming either. <laughs> In fact, I'm on the pages where um, – so the suicide happens shortly after – Esther loses her virginity to this guy named Irwin. And, uh, yeah, yeah, because she, she, um, so she and Joan go into Cambridge on a day pass. She meets this guy. They, they go and she starts, they have, they have sex. She starts bleeding profusely. Apparently, it's like something, something happened. She ends up getting, Joan, she, like, Joan, uh, takes her to a doctor, et cetera, and to the emergency ward, et cetera. And then you have, uh, you know, you have her there. I don't remember how long she's in the emergency room or she's in the hospital, but the Joan disappears like right after she drops off Esther at the hospital. And then she, and she goes kill and she goes and hangs herself. And it's like, it, it comes out of completely nowhere. So I don't know. I think maybe it could be interpreted that she was depressed over, I don't know. It's it's like, you know, I think the, the cynical, the, 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 the really, really bad take would be like she saw that Esther lost her virginity. She decided to hang herself over that, which is really stupid in my mind. Um, and that's just I don't think that's a really good interpretation of it, I think. Um, but something something triggered her in some way. But like they're like, yeah, she came in here and, and we can't find Joan. And then at the end, it's like a page later. They're like, yeah, she hanged herself. And that comes out of like yeah. nowhere. And so you're right. It's just it, everything seemed okay, and they were having a good time and everything. So it's just um, yeah. So the the whether or not Joan was attracted to her, um, I would have to go back and like reread and like find specific things. It might be very very subtle, but I did pick up on Joan's being uh, being gay. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, didn't 
I thought Esther hid what she, what happened to her from Joan. She, was, she didn't like tell I don't the whole think she story. Told the whole but story. Yeah. she was bleeding. That was the that was the thing yeah. that because um, she and Joan got a cab. Joan insisted on riding with her. I don't think she really uh, explained to Joan how it happened. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, because Joan went to do something and. Uh, Esther kind of runs into the emergency room and she says for one crazy minute. So Joan asks, Joan half led, half dragged me to the sofa and made me lie down. She then propped some pillows under my bloodstained feet. Then she took, cause she is like, she's like bleeding out. Basically she's, there's blood everywhere. Um, then she stood back and demanded, who was that man? For one crazy minute, I thought Joan would refuse to call the doctor until I confessed the whole story of my evening with Irwin, and that after my confession, she would still refuse as a sort of punishment. But then I realized that she honestly took my explanation at face value, that my going to bed with Erwin was utterly incomprehensible to her, and his appearance at a mere prick to her pleasure at my arrival. Oh, somebody, I said with a flabby gesture of dismissal. Another pulse of blood released itself, and I contracted my stomach muscles in alarm. Get a towel. And then from there, they um, they call the doctor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So she basically waves it off. Um, now, whether or not Joan figured out what had happened is a totally other <laughs> a totally other thing. But Joan goes with her. Um, the doctor's there, and then Joan's at her bedside, and then he the doctor says, "I can fix it all right." And he says, "I was roused by a tap at my door. It was past midnight. The asylum quiet as death. So she's back in her room." I couldn't imagine who would still be up. And Dr. Quinn comes in and asks, um, I'm sorry to bother you, Miss Greenwood, and especially this time of night, but I thought you might be able to help us out with Joan. And that's when Joan has disappeared and hung herself or hanged herself. So it it happens Mm -hmm. like the same. It seems to happen the same night. She's put under for whatever surgery she has to have in order to fix the bleeding stitches or whatever it is. And then she wakes up like, or we wake up with her in the, in her room in the, uh, later on so uh, but the move the book ends with her walking into what is essentially a hearing on her health it's implied she's feeling a lot better and it's very possible she's going to go home does this book have a happy Mm -hmm. ending does it have an upbeat ending how much is the way we view the ending affected by what we th- know of Plath and well, her death? Yeah, if we think about Plath, I think we assume that the ending is negative. That's a it's yeah. a sad ending, and that she I don't know says she's not ready, or she blows that interview or something, and the the mm-hmm. bell jar hovers closer to the ground. Or moves as it, you know, encloses her. I hope, I mean, to be honest, reading that last page or the last couple of pages, I was filled Mm -hmm. with dread. (laughs) And I thought that I had more in the novel because of this back section. So when it ended abruptly, I'm like, oh, okay. So I like the ambiguity because I think you can go in or leave either way. I, like I said, this time I I dread. I thought that she was going to mess it up. Uh, I don't know what my initial reading was uh-huh. of it. I would hope in my optimistic heart that she gets out and, and she is better. I, I think she needs to be away from her mother and, you know, start fresh potentially. Yeah. But 
cool. Yeah, I don't know. I was yeah. just so worried. She before she goes into there, there's a couple of little vignettes of her talking about what's been going on lately with the people around her, and one of the things is the fact that Buddy broke up with her, basically calling her damaged goods. Which to hell with that guy anyway. <gasps> Because he basically says he, he basically TB. Say, he has TB, yeah, yeah. Because he was taking air yeah. and TB at a TB clinic, but it's just like, dude. But he basically says you're damaged goods. Who's going to want you now? And she, she's like, whatever. And she takes again. She was. There's one point where she's like, I was. I'm free. You know, this other person left, and this person is gone, or whatever. Um, I agree with you. I there's there's a a slight hope in the ending. Like I really hope for her. Yeah. And knowing what happened to Sylvia Plath, it's very sad. So it's 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 bittersweet mm. in that sense. But take the author away from it and just have the character. It is a little more hopeful, but it's not like inspirational in that sort of you know upbeat sense. You know. So I don't I don't hear a soaring end credits anthem playing. You know. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well, one last question. Is this required reading? I personally think that it is. And, you know, not all required reading is easy or yeah. uplifting. But I, I think that this is good for a female perspective mm -hmm. at that time, as well as some things that transcend that particular time, just societal and cultural issues. And... Mental health, I think, and p potentially seeing where it was then, slightly how far we've come, and also having some like cautionary hey, maybe we've come far, but you know, let's not slide back, or there are still things we can work on. I agree, uh, completely. Um, and, and I would, if I, if I saw, um, students I knew who, who were into stories like this or, or something, you know, who, who very much would in who I've seen with similar poetry and stuff that I would ask, um, or plots or whatever, I, I would ask if they read it and I would recommend it because, or, or who have a vested interest in stuff like mental health and stuff. I think it's a really, really important book. So. All right. So with that, we have a little bit of feedback. I'll go ahead and read that. We have a Facebook comment from Robert Ward about the girl with the dragon tattoo. He said he had never had the time to fit in the original film adaptation, was planning to watch it. He had mixed feelings on the novel. We'll be interested to find out uh, if either of us have a knowledge of the follow-up books to see if they're worth chasing down. And then Scott McGregor about the same episode said, nice, light family, fa nice, light family <laughs> reading fair, LOL. <laughs> LOL. That's true of like the the next yeah, five yeah. novels. We're uh, Robert Ward then said on Twelfth Night, I just listened to the Archangel Shakespeare version of the play and have to say I'm still hopelessly lost even after Tom's summary. <laughs> I'll need to track down a player film version of the play. I hadn't read or seen it before and found it a little impenetrable in audio format, at least as an introduction. It is a play that you really should see. You know, I don't know. I like I love Twelfth Night, but it is one of those things where I first encountered Twelfth Night seeing a performance of it. And so to see it put on is is really to is really one of the ways to go. So. All right. I wonder how they do an audio book, because does that mean that a woman like drops her voice deeply and then I, the. You know, to be the, the to one be a man. I listened to, I think they were just performing 
the um with the fem with the with the female inflection. Remember Olivia no Viola <laughs> Viola as Cesario claims to be a eunuch. So she doesn't have to drop her voice too much to have a male inflection. Oh, that's true, yeah. All right. So yeah, so um and I'm sure we'll have more feedback next episode because uh, this is coming our next episode, uh, our prior episode to this has not dropped yet as of our recording. So hopefully people will have some stuff to say about uh, a separate piece. But until then, please don't forget to write in to us or leave comments and stuff and feedback on the Facebook page, etc. And we're about to go. But before we do, we need to find out what we're reading for episode 65. Stella, what you got for me? Oh, yeah. Well, we... we... <laughs> had some depressive novels so i we're gonna have uh, kind of a more uplifting novel though it does have sad parts and also i felt like we needed to represent a group that we've not represented here on this show before <laughs> so we're going to read the art of racing oh. in the rain by garth stein whoa okay we'll come back in one month for that and until then, uh, thank you very much for listening and take care. And please don't eat, what was it, snails, clams? Just watch what you're eating when you go to yeah, fancy things. Yeah. Don't, don't eat the, the, the crab dip. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. It was crab oh, that's dip, what it was. It? <laughs> it was crab, yeah. yeah. Man, she was eating so much. She had ice cream, two servings of ice cream, and I think she was eating all that caviar too. So it yeah, been but anything. she was pretty shellfish with the food. Good night. <laughs> Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two troops. That's two troops. If you're interested in learning more about the books we read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.